I have a task to do today. It's going to be very difficult for me. I have to preach in about 20 minutes. And for y'all that know me, that's going to be tough. But we're going to be ordaining and installing elders and deacons today at the end of the service, well, during the service. And uh, so I will be uh, brief with my remarks uh, today. Now, if you're visiting what we have been doing, we have been looking at the book of Mark. It's called the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I noted this uh, week that we discovered that Jesus apparently was married. I don't know if you read that this week. Uh, of course, uh, <clears throat> that, that manuscript was about 400 A.D., about 400 years later, so I don't think we can count on that one too much. But we do have four Gospels. True Gospels, the Word of God that given us account of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the reason we're looking at the book of Mark is probably Peter's gospel given to Mark. And it's fast moving and it points us to the person and work of Christ and it calls us to deal with who he is and either respond one way or the other. Now to this point we have not actually seen much teaching by Jesus Christ and yet we see his authority and his power and you know, all that's taking place, crowds are following him. Last week John preached on uh, Jesus' statement that... Uh, that uh, he can forgive sins. He has the authority because of who he is. He is the Almighty God who has come in the flesh. He's been raised from the dead. Now what we're going to look at in the time that we have this morning is he is going to teach us. And what he's going to teach us are those who are here today who will be saved and those who will not be. Very clear. Very clear. And because there's always two groups of people, the redeemed of the Lord and those uh, who truly choose another way. And so I want you to turn to our text this morning. We're not going to read the whole text. Uh, We're going to read verses 13 through 17. So this is God's word. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and he followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I came not to call the righteous the sinners. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we ask in the moments that we have to look at what you said 2,000 years ago. Would you apply it to our hearts? Father, I pray that we might not be middle-class sinners, but we would be poor and needy. That you would give us grace to understand who you dine with, who you fellowship with, and who will be at that everlasting feast in that great day. Lord, I pray for those 
who are here today that your Holy Spirit has never truly opened their ears to hear the gospel with their eyes to see Jesus with the eye of faith. Lord, would this be the day, would this be the day that they would repent of their righteousness and become sinners and flee to Jesus Christ. And Father, for us who are here today who feel there's no hope that we've ruined our lives, whether it's abortion or addictions or families that we've ruined or multiple marriages or just the narcissism that's eaten us and everybody around us alive. Lord, would today you'd speak to them as such as the kingdom of God. And we ask these things in your name and for your sake. Amen. 1967, during the height of the civil rights movement, a year from when Martin Luther King would be assassinated, a time of integration, a time where there were still 12 uh, laws on the, on the books in 12 states that uh, it was illegal to have a mixed marriage. There was a movie that was released uh, starring Katherine Hepburn and Tracy, uh, Spencer Tracy, who actually died 17 days uh, after the release of that movie, Sidney Poitier and Katherine Houghton. And maybe you've seen the movie. Uh, it's called Guests Who's Coming to Dinner. And the story goes like this. Katherine Houghton is the daughter of uh, parents who are progressives, liberal-minded, open from New York. And she always respected her parents because uh, they were not just bound by the culture and bound by the times. And so she goes on a vacation to Hawaii and she meets a doctor. And uh, so she tells her mom and dad, I want, to bring, I want to bring him home. I want you to meet him. And so uh, they're excited about her uh, marrying a doctor. And, and, and uh, they spoke to him on the, uh, the phone. Or... But anyhow, so the day comes and they show up at the front door, right, for dinner. And they open the door and there's their daughter with Sidney Portia, who's an African-American. And, of course, all of a sudden, uh, liberal-minded, open parents who it's right, great up there in theory, but all of a sudden, there's two cultures that begin to clash. And the rest of the movie is about them struggling with what they say they believe and actually what is reality. And all the awkward situations that were throughout the movie. And as I started thinking about the movie, I think about our text because our text here is about the ultimate who's uh, coming to dinner text, right? But in this case, it's very opposite because the people who are, are throwing the party are the ones who are the outcast. They're the ones who are not acceptable, the tax collectors and the sinners. And yet here we find the living God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, eating with the outcast, fellowshipping with sinners. While those who are the religious, those who are acceptable, those who are with the Jews, those who coached baseball or good citizens were on the outside looking in, not understanding at all what is going on because according to their tradition is you're not supposed to hang out with those people. 
And so what our text tells us here is who Jesus wants to have dinner with. Who, he, who he'll fellowship with. Our text is telling us ultimately who are going to be the, 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 the guests at the wedding feast in that great day when all is past and, and all the saints are gathered together. And if you desire him to come and, and if you desire him to dine with you in this life and the world to come, and, and by the way, everything for us, the future has come. It is now, okay? The future is now present, whereas most people, they're always looking to the future, and everything one day in the future will be great, but, but we have it now. And so this text is addressing us to ask the question, uh, who will be with him then, and, and who wants him here now, and who will he sup with? Let me tell you, that's an important question. Because you understand, this is completely the opposite of the world and especially the religions of the world. Who has the right to gather at the table in a secular world? Those who've accomplished. Those who've made it. Those who are smart. The pretty people. The acceptable people. Those who have the right family names. But it's even worse among the religions of the world. I will tell you that every single religion of this world is based on your performance. And what you do that gives you the right to come to the table in this life, but especially to the table to come. And it's all about performance. And so this text, you understand, is deplorable to those who are here today who are self-righteous. To middle-class sinners. Bad, but not that bad. I've been often asked with absolute indignation, and I'm sure I'll be asked many, many times before I die this question. And maybe you're having this question. And I'd love, I'll buy your dinner and you can ask me this question. And I'll buy you lunch, it's cheaper. <laughs> you mean to tell me that a man who has been living a life of adultery, neglecting his family, abusing his position at work, a tyrant at work, that if right before he dies, uh, maybe the last year of his life, he begins to, to see his wretched estate. And by God's grace, he begins to sorrow for the life that he wrecked and the life that he ruined. And the lives that he ruined. That if he, by faith, looks to Jesus Christ, then Christ will come to him and sup with him and take him to heaven and to dwell with him forever when the other guy who is a wonderful husband, faithful to his wife, served in the Peace Corps, was a responsible father and a good employer, dies without trusting in Christ that he will not be justified before God. Now my answer would is kind of like, well, you know, I would really like to believe the way you do because, you know what, I like my righteousness. Do y'all? That I'm a fine person. I've been faithful to my wife, Mary Beth. You know, I believe the Bible. I'm a pastor. I believe in the Word of God. But you see, that's not the right answer because if that's the right answer, then we destroy this word mercy. And you know what the word mercy means? Those who do not get what they deserve. And so there are two kinds of people here today. You want to get what's fair and you'll get justice. 
But God in His mercy to those who are today that have no hope, they're just absolutely hopeless, He promises you that He will give you what is above fair. And you know what that is? He will give you Himself. For who? Not middle class Christians. But for people like this in our text. I'm just telling you. I mean, really, seriously, how many of you have ever really repented of your sins? How many of you have ever come to the, you know, the, the old spiritual song that says, it's not, it's not me or my brother, but it's not my brother or my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I was just reminded of this yesterday. I mean, I, I got, you know, didn't get my way about something, and then I got frustrated, and I got angry. Well, what is wrong with me? And, of course, I had to repent. But you know what the great thing is? I can always repent because I'm united to Christ. But you understand that's the question. That is the ultimate question as to what you say about your sin and about Jesus Christ. I often point people to the thief on the cross, right? I mean, why are there two thieves there? Seriously. Well, because there were two thieves there. <laughs> it happened in space and time. We're not talking metaphor. Two guys were on the cross in Luke chapter 23. And one of the criminals who was hanging there, they're both criminals, right? They're criminals. And one says to him, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and while you're at it, save us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say today, you will be with me in paradise. You know who those two thieves are? They're us, and you're one or the other. And you're basically saying, you know what, I, this is not right. This is not, I, I, don't, I don't even know if I want to be here at Redeemer today. This has happened, that's happened, this has happened. And then you have those who are here who are going, I deserve nothing. And here's this thief on the cross, he's looking at Jesus, forgiving all these people who are unjustly crucifying him. And he says to them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then you have one guy that's hardened, just as hardened as he can be. And you need to pray that your heart's not so hardened that you'll never, ever come. You need to pray for that. And then there's this man who it's not the wrath of God that brings him to repentance. It is the love of Jesus Christ. And he believes the gospel. He says, will you remember me this day? And Jesus says, of course. So what we have in our text is just two scenes. And uh, so I only have two points today. And uh, <clears throat> so what we see in the first scene is that he... Here, here's, here's who he'll call today in this room. Sinners. He will save sinners. And then in scene two, we'll see that who he does not call and thus will not save, and they're those who are not sinners. And, of course, we're going to have to define sinner here in a little bit, aren't we? So the first thing he says is this. He calls and he says sinners. Two scenes, right? The first thing we have is, uh, is, is Levi. And then we have Levi's friends in the second scene. 
And what you see in Levi and his friends is that they really are hopeless people. They're, they've been cast aside. And so as we look at scene one, it's the call of Levi. Now, <clears throat> y'all, he's a tax collector, right? Those are bad people. Well, I had to go look this up a little bit more because I just can't get up and say, hey, tax collectors, bad people. I have to go and go, now what is a tax collector? Exactly what did that mean? Well, we have tax collectors. It's called the IRS. And they come in, you know, they're hired by the government, and they say, hey, look, you don't owe anything. We owe you or you owe us a little bit of money. But there's, there's nothing going on under the table, at least I hope not. But that was not the way it was with the tax collectors. And the Jews hated the tax collectors because they were Jews taking money from Jews to give to the Goyim, the Gentiles, the Romans, who were taking all that money and buying weapons to conquer the world. But as I kind of delved into this thing a little bit further, I discovered that there were two kind of tax collectors. There were those who just collected the general taxes. It was a 1% income tax. How about that? And nobody knew who they were. But then there were those who what you call poll tax collectors. And uh, they were the ones who were taking poll taxes, and they were skimming off the top. And among the, the poll tax collectors, you first had what they called the Gabai, and then you had the Mohites. Okay, you go, oh, okay, here we go. Well, no, I need to explain this to understand what Levi was like. Because I want you to say he was the worst of the worst. The, the Gabai, they were the, the, the general tax collectors. They took property tax, income tax, poll tax, whatever, uh, but, but they weren't skimming. But he wasn't one of those. He was what they call the Mokes, I think is how you pronounce it, M-O-K-H-E-S. They collected duties, duties on everything, little duties, uh, where roads would cross, import taxes, export taxes, items uh, bought, items sold, taxes on the road. Uh, they would actually uh, count the number of legs on your donkey and, and tax you for each leg on the donkey. And, uh, and then, you know what, they taxed the fishermen. And here they was at a, at a, on the coast, right? So they probably knew who this guy was. The other disciples, they're fishermen. They probably stopped by Levi's place and paid a tax that he pocketed half of. And so what we have in the person of Levi is the lowest of the low. But I began to use my imagination a little bit, and I started going... I wonder how he got that bad. You ever wonder that? He used to read, oh, he's a bad person. And, you know, Levi was uh, from the tribe of Levi. I'm sure he was a disappointment to his family. They probably wanted him to be a scribe or a Pharisee. And so I just thought, well, how did he get there? I thought, well, maybe, maybe he was dyslexic. He couldn't read. Of course, uh, he wrote the book of Matthew, so I guess uh, that blows that theory, but work with me here. And so because he can't read, he feels bad about himself, and then people make fun of him. Any of y'all ever had that happen to you? And Then he begins to question the goodness of God, because why do people make fun of me? And then, you know, maybe he gets to junior high or high school, and he starts smoking dope. And he starts smoking dope, and he's really messing his life up, and he starts making what we call bad choices. 
Bad life decisions. And then he gets addicted. And, and then he gets to the point there's no safety net. He's rejected by his family. He's rejected by his friends. And the only thing that he can do to survive is become a tax collector. I'm just imagining here, you said. I mean, how do people get where they are? How have you gotten where you are? But he's a sinner. And he knows he's messed up. Now, here's what's interesting. There's a whole multitude of people that are following Jesus. They're interested in him. You know, he heals people. He has great teaching. People are following him around, and they're interested, and there's benefit from being around Jesus Christ. There's all kind of people like that. Middle-class sinners. What Jesus is going to do for me, he's going to square my marriage away. I mean, we have people all the time that think, hey, Redeemer's going to be the place that's going to square my marriage away, and it doesn't, and they get frustrated. Or people who kind of think that, you know, if I got a redeemer and I tie my business will go better and it doesn't. Or whatever the reason is. And, uh, and so we, we are using God to a certain extent, right? We talk about this a lot, that religious people always use God. And I want you to hear me about this. Because you want to go to redeemer, you want to hear Gresham uh, play some great music. Well, I kind of like that, didn't like that, whatever it may be. But, but, but there's always people following Jesus. But I want to tell you, he comes to Levi. He comes to the hopeless. The guy that nobody wants to associate with. And he says to Levi, Levi, you follow me. And let me tell you something that you might not agree with here at this point. But I don't think we can disagree with the fact that the text says that what Jesus said to him was effective. Because you know what? He got up and he left everything. And he followed Christ. I want to tell you, we live in a day and age where people believe not in the sovereign God, but the sovereign audience. And we kind of create this God who's like, well, I've done, I've done everything I know to do. And, uh, and, and, and so it's kind of left up to you to believe these things. I don't care how great a sermon is. I don't care. I mean, it's Jesus himself. He had Judas Iscariot, right? We've said this before, but Judas Iscariot had the best small group leader ever. And he rejected it. You know why? I'm going to tell you why. Because, because he was not called. And you will never be saved unless God calls you. Theologians call it irresistible grace. God wants to save you, you're going to get saved. If you don't want to get saved, then you know what? It's not irresistible grace. He just lets you do what you want to do. Because you want what's fair, right? But God comes to those who go, I need mercy. But the only way he's going to call you is if you get to be like Levi and you're completely doomed. There are no good people. Matter of fact, the Bible teaches that you're dead in your sin. Jesus calls Levi and what does Levi do? He gets up and he follows. Which, by the way, if you're a Christian and you've heard Christ, the call of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. You're following. And what does that mean you're going to follow? Listen, I've got, we've got people in this room that, just like me, I always say, you're going to fall, but fall forward. Don't fall away, right? We fall and bust our nose all the time. But you're falling forward. You know why? Because you cannot not follow Christ. Even if you try to move away, He's going to keep calling you to Himself. Why? Because it is God who's sovereign, not you.
Now, has he called you? Have you come to a place in your life that your wife is not your problem? I'm telling you, husbands, your wife is not your problem. I'm going to tell you, children, your parents are not your problem. And parents, you know, we're our problem. G.K. Chesterton, one time, they, uh, back in 1904, they, they put in the London Times, wrote, uh, 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 did this essay thing. Oh, what's the problem in the world? And D.H. Lawrence uh, responded to it. And uh, John Stuart Mills, I think, responded to it. Uh, William James responded to it. And so did a guy named G.K. Chesterton. They wrote pages and pages and pages. It was kind of a contest. He sent one page in. And on that one page, he had two words. And his response is, I am. And I tell you, if you're a hard person to live with, with a roommate or a date, somebody you're dating or you're married to somebody, you're a hard person to live with. And we can all be hard people to live with. Are you really seeing that you're the sinner? So that's the first thing, right, Levi? And then, and then of course, the second scene is, uh, is uh, he, it, Jesus says, come follow me. He follows, and, and then when he follows, you know what's kind of funny about the text? Where does he end up when he follows Jesus? At his house. <laughs> That's what it means to follow Christ. And so, so he's at his house. And who's he at his house with? Well, he was with all the people that everybody, the good people said, we do not want to have anything to do with you. And then who are the sinners? I don't know, but they were obviously, uh, their fellowship was the, the fellowship of the afflicted, the fellowship of those who are not acceptable. You understand that? People that aren't going to get invited naturally to your community group. People are broken. And so they hang out together with each other because uh, the only thing they have in common is the fact that they're broken people. And I started thinking about, you know, who the sinners would be. And I started thinking about, well, probably prostitutes. And, and I've studied some about, you know, the, the, that lifestyle or strippers or whatever it may be. You know what I've discovered is about 90% of them, 80% of them were sexually abused. Might have been the uh, rabbi. Might have been the, the uncle who was an elder at the church. Oh, I've heard that stuff. And so all of a sudden, lives are shattered. And so they have no sense of being, no sense of worth. And so they just enter on in. To a life of this world that's chaotic and broken, you see. And if you've never had that happen to you, it's really hard to understand other people whose lives have been shattered like that, right? But Jesus understands. And I don't know why you're where you are or why you've done the things that you've done, but I'm here to tell you right now that Jesus Christ loves you. He is not for the self-righteous, trust me. He resists them. But he's for those who are very, very broken. Well, so that's who he calls. He calls to save sinners. And guys, I got to tell you, as a church, we need to be involved in the lives of sinners. Why don't you invite people here? I, I think we're preaching Christ every week. I think we're trying to give hope to sinners. We need to get out of the salt shaker into the world. We need to have the fellowship of sinners. Which, by the way, if you're visiting Redeemer, I can tell you one of the great things about being at Redeemer is there's a lot of folks you might look around and go, well, they don't think they're sinners. Oh, yeah, they do. And they're wonderful to have fellowship with. But then 
Let me tell you who he doesn't call, and I have to end on this. Who does he not call? Who will not be called here today and will perish in your sin and your self-righteousness? That's what he says in verse 16. Well, when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Yeah, I mean, you ever look at people and go, man, what is their problem? And, uh, you're, I mean, again, you're, you fellowship with people that are kind of like you. You're not involved in the lives of people that, that are very broken. But what we see here is that they are, they're, they're not understanding. Why, why are you, like, going to bars and why are you hanging out with these people? These people will corrupt you. And you know what? That proverb that says uh, that good, what, bad company corrupts what? Good morals. Do y'all know that's true? That really is true. <laughs> I, 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 I think I've talked about this gentleman before who used to go to Redeemer. He says, I just don't like hanging around Christians that much. I'm like, well, who do you hang out with? <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, but you know, when it says good morals corrupt, corrupt uh, bad morals, good, bad company corrupts good morals, it's because we're corrupt. You see? <laughs> it's just easy to kind of give in to that. But it's very hard, even if you're a believer and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that's when the conflict really takes place because you're going, I am them, and I'm worse than them. And I need to be with people who understand that. So we'll look to Christ together. That's what it's talking about. But here are the, here are the Pharisees, and uh, they just uh, they don't get it. You know what? Because they built a whole system that was completely contrary to what the whole Old Testament was about. And they made the whole Old Testament about rules and regulations and Jesus blows it all away by saying, here's the whole Old Testament in two verses. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbors yourself. That's it. But you can't do that. But that so the Old Testament is about me. In fact, everything when Jesus is teaching them, you go, I wonder what he's teaching them. He's not telling them be good and try hard, be nice. Do you know that? He's saying, you're corrupt. It's impossible for you to be saved. You can't change your marriage. You can't change yourself. But I can. Are you a poor Christian? Are you bankrupt? You know, bankrupt. I got nothing. I got nothing. And I tell you, one of the, you know, I talked to some people who have gone bankrupt financially. They'll tell you that they begin to understand what it is to be bankrupt spiritually. I can't buy anything. I can't get a store. I don't have any credit. I got nothing. And you see, don't some of us have a lot of righteous credit? You know, I prayed this week. I've been a redeemer. I'm a reformer. Whatever it may be. But until you come to the point to where you're absolutely bankrupt and you have nothing to bring, you will never, ever know Jesus Christ. I want to close on this. Kent Hughes tells a story. It's really a sad story of a woman in the 19th century. Kent Hughes, is a, he's written a lot of commentaries. He's a pastor of Wheaton uh, Church up in Wheaton, Illinois. But I was reading, uh, as I was studying for this, he talks about this woman in the 19th century who was very poor. Uh, she was a have-not. She was despised by her society. 
She had been living with a man of another race, and not only that, but she had a baby by this man of another race. But she started coming to the women's Bible study. And she really loved it. She loved what she was hearing. So she was coming, came again and again. But eventually the vicar, which is a priest or a preacher, finally came to her and said, I have to ask you to, to, not, to stop coming to the meetings. It blew her away. She, 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 was, she asked, why? And the pastor, the vicar, the priest said, the other women say that they will stop coming if you continue to come. And she looked at him with a broken heart and she said, Sir, I know I am a sinner, but isn't there anywhere a sinner can go? And go to Jesus Christ. And my dear brothers and sisters in Jesus, I tell you what, people are going to come here if we as believers and members of this church see our own sin and our need for Christ. And we come and we worship Him. Have you come to that point in your life where you go, I, I am doomed. I have no hope. And I can't justify my sin. I cannot justify myself anymore. I will tell you, you're hearing the voice of Jesus. And I would encourage you to put off waiting and come to him now. As these men come up here to ordain, they've been through a lot of training, I'm going to tell you, for like eight or nine, eight months or so. Stay the Westminster Confession Scriptures. We demand a lot. But the number one requirement for these men to serve is that they think they're the chief of sinners in this church. And they come in absolute weakness out of love for Jesus Christ to serve this body. I so want to see revival come. I want to see it happen in your life. And it begins at the household of God. And some of you, please, please, today, ask Jesus to take your hard heart and crash it against this brick wall and cut it in half so that you might be free to come to Jesus and let all those sins go. Please, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the, your word. We pray now as we come to ordain uh, these men, that they would be men of your word, that they would love you and love the broken people here. There's nobody here that's not broken. They just need to figure that out. Oh, Lord, would you save people this morning that they would be converted through the preaching of the word and they would look to Christ and know the joy of being free, that he loves the sinners, the despised, those who everyone else would reject. And Lord, we know that if we could all have our hearts poured out before anybody in this room, we would never come back to this church. But you love us and accept us. So now, Lord, bless this uh, service as we continue and as we come to the Lord's table. And we ask it in your name. Amen.